Roses are red. Barack is half black. If you can't drink milk, you have to go back. Eric, what the hell is that? Oh, that it's just a poem I found on the internet. You're not just supposed to read random crap you find on the internet out loud. Didn't they teach you that in How to Be a History Professor 101? There's a How to Be a History Professor class? We do them in anthropology. Don't you guys do them in history? The lesson is week three. It's called Don't Read Random Crap You Find on the Internet Out Loud. <laughs> Maybe you were sick that you know semester. I just thought it would be a good poem to start a little mini-series on race and health with. That's all. That's a terrible poem. And did we even do regular introductions yet? I swear we take one month off and I can't get you people on any kind of a regular <laughs> system here. You're right. Cue the intro music. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking of Race, a show where two scientists and a historian discuss the long and messy story of race and science. All right, all right, all right. I want to know why Eric picked that horrible poem. What is that all about? Right. Okay, so early in 2017, somebody anonymously posted that poem in one of those weird white supremacist corners of the so-called dark web and then attached a map to it. And the map purportedly showed the evolutionary spread of tolerance to lactose in dairy products. The dairy diaspora from the Middle East starting about ten or 11,000 years ago. Wait, wait, wait. I don't get it. Why would white supremacists care about milk consumption? It's not just because cow's milk is white, is it? I mean, it's stupid, but it's not quite that stupid. Oh. So that map was ripped from a 2013 review article published in Nature, which showed that lactase persistence, which is uh, the ability among some people to consume milk without a problem. Like me. Like you. It evolved as populations herded milk-producing mammals. So as you move north and west through Europe, according to this map, it becomes more common because that's where the ability for adults to digest whole milk was most adaptive, which spread the gene far and wide. So lactose tolerance appears to be a trait affiliated with northern and western Europeans. So these guys on the internet are saying that if you can't tolerate the lactose in milk, you aren't welcome in the USA because you're not white enough. <laughs> oh, no. Northern and Western Europe, but also pockets in extreme West Africa, the Central Arabian Peninsula, and Northeast India. But but I want to hear more about why you brought it up anyway. Right. Okay. So a bunch of mid-20s white supremacist guys. Why am I not surprised? Decided to film themselves having a milk chugging party in the snow with their shirts off so you can see all their neo-Nazi tattoos on their chest. Nice. Lactose intolerance is a malady that affects non-whites, they keep saying. Now, that video actually caught on, enough so that your alt-right friend Richard Spencer decided to change his Twitter profile to sport a glass of milk emoji. Mm. And the phenomenon became so widespread in the white supremacist Twitterverse that just last year, the New York Times tracked down geneticists to take a position in this so-called debate. Listeners, my eyeballs are rolling so hard right now. <laughs> I, can, I can hear them. Uh, it's another example of how health and race stuff gets all mixed up and how you end up with half-truths and total BS turning into common knowledge about health and race. Today, we're going to begin a discussion about the roots of some of these modern misconceptions about race and health. It will take us, as most things do, a few episodes to get there. <laughs> Yeah, this is an old story, so we got to start at the beginning, and there's a lot to say. 
You might even remember that last year, Hillary Green spoke with us about the implications of white physicians' denial of black physiology. These physicians were talking about the idea that Africans could tolerate more pain, that they were resistant to tropical diseases, that they could work more with less food, et cetera, et cetera. This was specifically how Alabama physicians like J. Marion Sims were able to justify purchasing slave women and then conducting painful gynecological surgeries on them without bothering to find any way to dampen their pain. They were basically being treated like lab animals by Sims, and that was consistent with the polygenic beliefs of Sims and other American scientists and physicians during the first half of the 19th century. Let's remind everyone what polygenism means again that the races are different species with different origins. So blacks and aboriginal peoples had their own lines of descent and were fundamentally alien creatures compared to Europeans. In the U.S. especially, it served as a kind of justification for the brutality of slavery and the genocide of Native Americans. You know, ironically, many of the most well-known polygenic physicians of the U.S., including J. Marion Sims, and Josiah Clark Knott, who's the physician honored right here at the University of Alabama, and another guy, uh, Samuel Cartwright from Louisiana. These guys often did their surgical work on the very black bodies that they then used to do that surgery on white bodies. So in other words, they were similar enough. I think I said that when we spoke with Hillary, right? There's this idea that black and white people were different species, but when it was convenient for white people, they were similar enough that it could work. Yeah, and they came up with these crazy medical ideas because of that similarity. So in 1851, Samuel Cartwright famously discovered this malady that he calls dryptomania, which was an illness that caused a slave to try to escape from the slave's master. Oh, God. Okay. How, how do you treat, uh, you know, doing what just about any slave in his right mind would want to do? Cartwright suggested that it came about because masters were being too harsh. Okay, so be nicer was the treatment? Um, that, or, you know, whipping. Whoa. You know, like others of his time, Cartwright showed Africans to be subhumans who had to be kept controlled through the perfect balance of violence and provision of their basic needs. So slaveholders had to construct this shock and awe and fear among the captives because that would keep the slaves caged without putting them in literal cages. Later on in this episode, we'll see how powerful and long-lasting those ideas were. But even those ideas from the mid-19th century didn't just appear out of nowhere, right? No, I mean, of course not. It's just that it's difficult to tell how old these ideas really are. But we need to make sure that listeners don't think that these issues are as old as our species is. Yes. Yeah, saying these ideas are really old sometimes makes people believe that somehow race and racist science are these natural categories that can't be changed because they're based on biological facts, which, of course, is not true. Right. So so it's old. But I think we can say with some precision who some of the key promoters of these ideas were in the relatively recent past. All right. Where do we start? Well, we were just discussing the 19th century notion that black bodies were less susceptible to pain, and that made them better suited than white bodies for pack animal and lab animal tasks. You know, this also seems to be the starting point. I was thinking about this when you were just talking. For, for modern ideas that people of African descent are better athletes, right? Since a lot of athletics takes the ability to just keep going despite pain or to overcome pain. And of course, we talked about race and athletics in a much earlier podcast. But 
that view wasn't a universal one. If you go back to a century before Knott and Cartwright, you find Thomas Jefferson advocating something very different. Eric, would you read the quote? Okay, let me let me just preface it by saying that um, this is from Thomas Jefferson's 1785 Notes on the State of Virginia. And that was one of the most prominent books to come out of the new United States and was widely cited even in Europe as a good example of the American political experiment. But if you dig into the parts where Jefferson discusses slavery and race, you find Jefferson combined a kind of polygenism and white physical and mental superiority. And that was supposed to justify not emancipating slaves. So here's the quote. I advance it therefore as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances are inferior to the whites in the endowments of both body and mind. Yeah, what I find striking here is how flexible, you might say, physicians and scientists could be when they're talking about these ideas of disease and race. I mentioned that a minute ago, but you know, sometimes they emphasize the suitability of Africans for hard labor in locations where tropical disease is rampant. Other times they're emphasizing the, the sort of lack of vitality of black bodies compared to white bodies, especially when they're trying to justify one of them ruling over the other. Yeah, flexibility is one word for it. <laughs> Racism is another, but <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Jefferson would have been familiar with the works of another physician of the time, Benjamin Rush, the founding father of American psychiatry and one of America's leading Enlightenment scholars and educators. Wait a second. I have heard of Benjamin Rush, and I thought that unlike Jefferson, he was really opposed to slavery. That's right. Ironically, though, he ends up becoming one of the sources for the idea that blacks feel less pain. And that feeds into the work of Cartwright and Knott and other polygenic physicians. Wait, I don't get it. How did Russia's work feed into polygenism in the 19th century? It goes back to a man named Henry Moss. Moss was a freeborn African-American who had fought in the Revolutionary War. He claimed that he had been born dark-skinned, but by the age of 38, he was almost entirely depigmented. And he was making money by going around and displaying himself as kind of a sideshow curiosity. And on July 23rd, 1796, he was at the Black Horse Tavern on Market Street in Philadelphia. Hmm. We know that because Benjamin Rush visited Moss there, and he was so impressed by the occasion that he actually pasted the handbill for the display in his diary for that day. Mm. Now we tend to think that Moss's depigmentation was some form of vitiligo, but Rush had a very different idea. Dark skin color, Rush said, came from leprosy. <laughs> and he thought that Moss's depigmentation was due to a partial cure of his leprosy. Um, what? Yeah, yeah, right, I know. And from there, Rush made the leap that all Africans were diseased as a part of their birthright. This blows my mind. He thought that dark skin just meant leprosy. How is that supposed to support his anti-slavery stance? And why leprosy? That doesn't even make sense. First, I, I have to tell you the charming way that he uses the term. He calls it the leprosy, like <laughs> the Facebook. 
Well, that's what all the cool kids were calling it back then. <laughs> right. Rush thought he had good reasons for connecting leprosy to dark-colored skin, and he lays out a long list of these ideas. He offered a report from Spain, a few biblical accounts, a report from Bougainville's Pacific voyages, an illustration of a Negro man from Virginia, and he also recounted claims that Negroes feel very little pain. In there, he tells an, an anecdote about an amputation that he participated in. He says that this is a symptom seen in leprosy, this lack of pain, to the extent that in some places there's an expression that a person has no more feeling than a leper. Ah, uh, right. What they're talking about there is neuropathy, which actually is a symptom of advanced leprosy. So that's where this idea that Africans don't feel pain gets made to seem as though it's some kind of valid medical observation, right? That's one of the scientific foundations of it. Whoa. He didn't stop there, though. <laughs> he goes on to say that lepers are supposed to have strong venereal desires uh -huh. and swollen lips and noses. And Rush even takes woolly hair to be a symptom of leprosy relying on a really tenuous connection to ingrown hair that was reported in some leprous poles. You mean like Polish people? Yes. Huh. I still don't get how this was supposed to help the cause of anti-slavery that Rush supported. Well, he believed that by combating skin color essentialism, the naturalness of skin color, he was combating slavery in spite of the fact that he was a slave owner himself. Okay, so I guess you're saying that if he could show that black skin was a result of disease and that if disease was able to be treated, that you could undercut the argument that black skin just meant destined for slavery. Absolutely. That's exactly what he was trying okay. to do. And in his 1799 article, he wrote that Henry Moss was one nail in the coffin of ignorant arguments about dark skin being divine judgment or proof that Africans could withstand harsh, disease-ridden climates. So he's drawing on the notion that dark skin is a kind of leprosy that makes it harder to feel pain. But in doing that, he thought he was destroying arguments for the enslavement of Africans. But instead, he just ends up feeding into a stereotype about black bodies being less susceptible to pain, just like Hillary Green talked about, in a way that even impacts the treatment of African-American patients by white doctors mm. today. Man, Benjamin Rush had such an outsized effect on the whole history of American medicine. I mean, he, he made Philadelphia the most important medical training school for all American physicians. So I can see how people like Samuel Cartwright and Josiah Knott and other prominent physicians who all trained in Philadelphia, how they could carry these misconceptions about blackness and disease and pain far and wide. It's hard to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yep, there is that old saying. <laughs> so this relationship of race and medicine might have been acceptable during the era of slavery and polygenism, but let's go forward a little bit. So by the 1860s or 1870s, Darwin had demonstrated the sort of scientific basis for monogenism or the idea that all humans are one species. And the U.S. finally joined the British Empire and they outlawed slavery. So things must have changed after that point, right? All right, all right. Joe, we could debate whether Darwin really ended the monogenism, polygenism debate, but we should do that another time. I don't think he did. Well, you're the Darwin expert. But my point is, polygenism was falling out of favor, right? Joe, remember when we brought polygenism up in our podcast series? It was in the context of anthropology in the 1960s and 1970s. So there's been a long history of continuity of polygenism thought. For the 19th century, one example is John F. Miller. 
I don't think I know who John F. Miller was. He was the superintendent of North Carolina's insane asylum for African-Americans. And his writings were very much like those of Cartwright and Knott, except that he came after the war. He gave an address in 1896 called The Effects of Emancipation Upon the Mental and Physical Health of the Negro of the South. And guess what he thought the effects of freedom were? Good. They were bad, Joe. Very bad. Come on. According to Miller, diseases like tuberculosis and insanity were very rare among African slaves before emancipation. But by the 1890s, freed African-Americans were much sicker with both. This is just Miller being racist, right? No. He said that he had no antipathy towards slaves, and, and his observations about rising sickness rates came from his 40 years living in slaveholding societies and conversations he had with friends and colleagues, as well as census data about the number of African Americans enrolled in asylums. Okay, so shaky methodology there, but what did he say about the reason for the rising rates of illness? Too much freedom. What? what? Too much freedom. Yeah. Well, uh, under slavery, food, shelter, clothing, medical treatment were all provided. And afterwards, not so much. He also blamed licentiousness and untreated lung ailments for weakening African constitutions and making them susceptible to tuberculosis. So then worry about day-to-day -day needs, licentiousness, bronchitis, all of that comes together and equals insanity. So the idea is that Africans can't be trusted to take care of themselves, basically. Yeah, and I'm catching a hint of the development of that lost cause narrative here, that somehow things were better for everybody, only under slavery. Hmm. And even the old ideas of Knott and Cartwright, that black bodies and minds are made to be in a state of slavery, like pack mules. But I also hear in Miller the idea that Africans are physically weaker than Europeans, which is really closer to Jefferson than to Cartwright. And again, there it is, that flexibility. Yeah. Doctors and scientists could emphasize the suitability of Africans for hard labor in locations where diseases were rampant. But other times, these white figures downplayed the vitality of the black body when it served them. Good segue, Joe, into talking about one of the most influential medical documents toward the turn of the 20th century. This is one that almost never gets talked about. Grey's Anatomy. I love that show. There was this one episode. No, Joe, 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 that's a TV show. And it's not even based on Henry Gray's actual anatomical textbook from the 1860s. No, that definitely wasn't where I was headed with this. I'm, I'm talking about the 329 pages Whoa. published in the Journal of the American Economic Association by an unknown statistical clerk at Prudential Life Insurance in 1896. It took up two entire issues of uh -oh. the journal. That's how important they thought it was. That is just not fair. It takes forever to get a single article published in a single issue, let alone having them devote entire journal issues to one person's statistical ideas. That sounds way less exciting than Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Joe, but, but uh, I, there are some exciting things about this. Let's, let, let me tell you a little bit about the fellow that wrote this uh, horrendously long articles. The author, Frederick Ludwig Hoffman, was born in Germany in 1865, but his father, who was an accountant, died when he was young, and so Frederick had to quit school and help to try and hold the family together. The problem is he was a complete failure at virtually everything he tried, mm -hmm. and by 1884, he lost a job on his first day at it. Ooh. 
Yeah, he had a distant relative that was kind enough to loan him money and get him some contacts so he could get to America and visit with Germans in New York and Cleveland. This is getting good. I'm totally a sucker for sad German immigrant in Cleveland stories. <laughs> Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> eat your heart out. That's right. After saving up the money that he had from a job essentially as a janitor in Cleveland, he took off to see the new country and he rode the rails like a hobo. You know, he'd just stop and pick up work when he needed. And eventually he settled into a clerk for Standard Oil. This is where we really need the bum 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 sound, because whenever Standard Oil is in the story, something bad is about to happen. Stop interrupting the German immigrant hobo from Cleveland story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hoffman moved from Standard Oil into the insurance industry when he took up a job in Waltham, Massachusetts. He traveled as an agent selling policies to cover burial expenses in poor neighborhoods. Several of his trips, no longer traveling like a hobo, Joe. Oh. Yeah, sorry. But his trips took him throughout the South, and there he encountered African Americans living in some of the poorest conditions. Soon after he began these trips, he published his first article, Vital Statistics of the Negro, in 1892. Turns out that someone at Prudential Life Insurance Company read the article, and because they were hoping to expand insurance to poor blacks in the South, they offered him a job in their statistical division in 1894. Man, this immigrant story just gets better and better. <laughs> but I still have no clue what this has to do with race and medicine. And I still want to know how a former rail riding hobo takes over two whole issues of an academic journal. For real. That 329-page blockbuster was Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro, published in 1896. And the reason he wrote it was because state governments were beginning to regulate insurance companies like the Prudential. Hoffman's article was an initial step to help Prudential get around those state regulations. Which ones? Well, for instance, in 1884, Massachusetts passed a law that stopped insurance companies from giving fewer benefits to black policyholders who were paying the same premiums as white ones. Hmm. Connecticut and Ohio followed with similar laws, and New Jersey and New York did so in the early 1890s. Yeah, that sounds very fair. But the insurance company sure as hell didn't like it. Prudential uh. turned to statisticians like Hoffman for a solution to get them off the hook from paying equal benefits. Hoffman's race traits and tendencies claimed that African-Americans were essentially uninsurable. He dug into tables and records of births and deaths and illnesses and reviewed anthropometric data, including stuff on lung size. And he looked at race crossing and he came to the conclusion that while the white population had been improving in health and longevity since the Civil War, African-Americans were diminishing in every area that would involve insurance claims. Now, that sounds definitely not fair. But using Hoffman, Prudential argued that any agency that offered African-Americans equal benefits would lose money. And so they said it was unfair to force companies to comply with these state laws. I mean, I'm no legal expert, but that seems to me like an obvious violation of the anti-discrimination statutes in the 14th Amendment. These corporations were undercutting the Constitution for their own financial gain, clearly. I'm shocked, I tell you, shocked. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I want to know more about the former Cleveland Hobo Hoffman. Was he? What was his deal? Like, was he just was he just racist? Did he manipulate the data? Like, what was his motivation here? That's a funny story. He he directly tried to address that. Here's a quote from his preference to race traits and tendencies. Being of foreign birth, a German, I was fortunately free from a personal bias, which might have made an impartial treatment of the subject difficult. There's that I'm not a racist stuff. I swear, people confuse a lack of feeling personal animosity toward people over their skin tones with just being not racist. I mean, even white slave owners claimed to love their black slaves, yet they still defended the social, political, and economic institutions that oppressed their slaves. It'd be great to talk about the differences between racial animosity and institutional racism in a future episode. Write that down. I, I should write that right. down. I will write that down. But I still want to know about Hoffman. So Hoffman was really trying to find objective data here? Well, um, I'm not going to be difficult about this. I'm just going to lay out the evidence and, and let the scientist and the historian make up their <laughs> own minds. Ooh. Uh, in, in his big old 329 pages, he spent six full pages extolling the virtues of the Aryan race, leading uh. off with a statement that I think Eric has to read. <clears throat> All right. It is not in the conditions of life. I should read this with a German accent. It is not in the conditions of life. No, that's terrible. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's not in the conditions of life, but in race and heredity that we find the explanation of the fact to be observed in all parts of the globe, in all times and among all peoples. Namely, the superiority of one race over another and of the Aryan race over all. But, but wait, there's more. Here's the conclusion of this not racist German immigrant just sticking to the facts. Can you do this one now, Eric? All the facts together in this work prove that the colored population is gradually parting with the virtues and the moderate degree of economic efficiency developed under the regime of slavery. All the facts prove that a low standard of sexual morality is the main and underlying cause of the low and antisocial condition of the race at the present time. All the facts prove that education, philanthropy, religion have all failed to develop a higher appreciation of the stern and uncompromising virtues of the Aryan race. The conclusion is warranted that it is merely a question of time when the actual downward course, that is, a decrease in the population, will take place. Okay, okay. So this clearly answers my question. He sounds just like the North Carolina guy we just talked about a second ago, John F. Miller. But Eric, you stopped reading too soon. You have to finish oh. it because he says something really important at the end of that quote. Okay, okay. Here we go. Instead of making the race more independent, modern educational and philanthropic efforts have succeeded in making it even more dependent on the white race at the present time than it was previous to emancipation. Unless a change takes place. Ooh, I need like a more ominous voice for this part. Yeah. Unless a change takes place. A change that will strike at the fundamental errors that underlie the conduct of the higher races toward the lower gradual extinction is only a question of time. This is why you're our quote reader, Eric. <laughs> it was a long <laughs> quote. So what he's saying, just, just so I'm clear here, if white people attempted to offer more educational opportunities and raised more money to help former slaves and their families, then African-Americans would go extinct. Faster, yeah. They would go extinct faster. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard of tough love, but this seems obviously self-serving. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, very much so for the insurance industry. But for the yeah, most really. part, it was very well received. Huh. Here's a little quote from a review in the American Statistical Association 
Uh, it is a most thorough and painstaking compilation. Cool. The reviewer endorses Hoffman's findings of the inferior status of blacks and their general decrease since emancipation. And then another professor at Yale praised the research based on its modern anthropology and statistics. Uh, there was very gosh. little pushback against this. But one of the people who did push back was a Harvard-trained African-American sociologist, William Edward Berger Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the founders oh, yeah. of the NAACP, among other things. Yeah, we definitely have to cover Du Bois in a future episode. Another negative review of Hoffman came from the Howard University mathematician and astronomer Kelly Miller. And there's another person that we should cover in the future. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Du Bois and Miller were prominent enough that people paid attention to what they had to say. Miller's 36-page review of the 329-page mm. article was number one in the occasional paper series of the American Negro Academy. Each of these two African-American scientists carefully refuted Hoffman's findings going section by section. They really didn't like his use of the 1890 census data. Huh. 1890 was, that, was the first U.S. census to uh, use punch cards uh, so they could quickly sort and tabulate data as a kind of forerunner of computerization. Yeah, but we have to remember censuses are not free of bias. That's something that we need to remind people about as we get ready for the 2020 census. Yeah, that's a good mm, point. True. The questions asked and the categories on the form can make the data good or it can make it terrible. Mm -hmm. The 1890 census that Hoffman used was the first and only one in the history of this country where census takers had to label black people as black, mulatto, quadroon, or octoroon. Mm. And guess what criteria they used to do it? I'm going to guess that they used a very good, thorough set of criteria. Yeah, uh, they just looked at them. <laughs> That's bunk. Okay, yes, I teach about this. So that census was especially bad because those categories are supposed to refer to how much black blood a person supposedly has. So a black person would be somebody who had two black parents. A mulatto person would have one black parent and one white parent. A quadroon would have one black grandparent and an octoroon would have one black great grandparent. And right. census takers had to make that call based on just how people looked. Yeah, man, that's a whole list of reasons why this data has to be suspect. Du Bois also perceptively criticized Hoffman for failing to stratify the data by socioeconomic status. That would have shown how many of the ailments Hoffman was laying at the feet of race were actually due to the dire socioeconomic conditions of African-Americans. These were the same socioeconomic conditions that urban African-Americans were sharing with the lowest economic class of recent immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. In other words, it wasn't race, but social right. and economic context that was behind Hoffman's alarming conclusion about black extinction. And I don't even recall any other social theorist of that era thinking or positing anywhere that Southern and Eastern European immigrants were about to go extinct. No, there were some that were wishing they would, but none that were yeah. thinking they would. Uh, in fact, it, exactly the opposite. And what's even crazier is that Hoffman himself had made this point about the socioeconomic effects on the African-Americans. Huh. What? He knew about this whole socioeconomic conditions and not race thing? For I know. poor health outcomes and well, what the heck? It, it, it's it sounds it sounds like it's it's crazy, but 
in in Kelly Miller's review of race traits and tendencies, he points out that the same author Hoffman, who in 1896 wrote, "It is not in the condition of life, but in the race traits and tendencies that we find the cause of excessive mortality," in 1892 affirmed. The colored population is placed at many disadvantages which it cannot very well remove. The unsanitary condition of their dwellings, their ignorance of the laws and health, and general poverty are the principal causes of their high mortality. Hmm. Miller goes on to say the Frederick L. Hoffman of 1892 is much nearer the true analysis than the Frederick L. Hoffman of 1896. Okay, so let me get this straight. In 1892, Hoffman writes this essay, The Vital Statistics of the Negro. And in that one, he noted that too little sanitation and too much poverty were the cause of high mortality among African-Americans. But then just four years later, after Prudential put him on the project, Hoffman decides that it's blackness itself that was to blame for poor health. I mean, so much for sticking to the facts. Am I right? Mm. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. I'm having deja vu, guys. (laughs) Right. Du Bois finishes his review of Hoffman like this. To sum up briefly, the value of Mr. Hoffman's work lies in the collection and emphasis of a number of interesting and valuable data in regard to the American Negro. Most of the conclusions drawn from these facts are, however, of doubtful value on account of the character of the material, the extent of the field, and the unscientific use of the statistical method. Go Du Bois. But but you said, Jim, earlier that Hoffman's work was still really influential, even after reviews like this one? Yes, absolutely, of course, because it made money for the insurance companies. By Uh. 1901, Prudential created a whole statistical department and put Frederick L. Hoffman at the head of it. My faith in humanity has ceased to exist. <laughs> but it kind of makes sense. I mean, numbers seem sciencey, mm. And Hoffman was offering a numerical justification for the things that corporations, which were, of course were led exclusively by white people, really wanted to hear. So let's bring this back to our topic of the day, which is race and health. I mean, as we'll see in future episodes, when governments extend civil rights to non-white groups, there's almost always a white backlash. And what better way to make it seem legitimate and not racist than by tying the backlash to some sort of biological trait that's essential to non-whites? If some physician or statistician says, that's just the way these things are, black women just have more premature babies and so they have higher infant mortality, many judges and legislators will just defer to those medical experts, especially when it's what they wanted to believe anyway, right? And of course, if the explanations given by those medical experts could be so very flexible, then I guess they can defend basically whatever they want. Man. Well, we've chewed on our listeners' ears for long enough for one episode. So we've just gotten started. Where are we going to go next? How about we take on the classical racial disease, sickle cell anemia? Until then, I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian of science, and you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Please leave comments on... Joe, where can they leave comments? Twitter at Speaking of Race, Instagram at Speaking of Race, and on Facebook at SOR Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you for the second part of our Race and Health series. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Bye-bye.